continue to make our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, to which I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2. We'll pick up with the 25th verse and read through the end of the chapter. Just as a reminder, you'll remember that Paul is here developing his argument about our need for justification, our need to be made right with God. And along the way, he is disabusing us of those false ways, those ways that we might be tempted to give as alternate sources of salvation, such as possession of the law, or to put it in modern terms, possession of a Bible or a whole stack of Bibles and a stack of Bible study booklets to go with them. We saw last time those things will not Save us. Today, Paul tears down another false refuge of the hypocrite, beginning in Romans 2, verse 25. But before we go to the text, let us go to prayer. And to God, our Father in heaven, we pray that you will grant us grace to receive your truth and to be conformed to it. Already we have spoken with your servant and before you, the need that we should have a living and true faith. Supply it to us here, we pray today. Open our ears and our hearts to receive your word, we pray. And Father, if there be any here this morning who have not yet received the work of your spirit, the renewing of your, their hearts, we pray that you will grant that as well for your glory and for your kingdom. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 2, we begin at verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It is the bent of the human heart. And it can be demonstrated all through the scripture and human experience. I say it is the sinful bent of the human heart to trust in anything but God for salvation. That seems, for whatever reason, to be the case, especially when it comes to rituals and ceremonies, and particularly the sacraments. Now, there's nothing sinful about rituals or about ceremonies, nor especially the sacraments. These are not our idea. They are God's idea. God gave them to us. He has demonstrated in his word that there are certain ways in which he must be worshipped. 
He's also demonstrated in the course of conveying his salvation to men that there are certain sacraments, call them ordinances if you prefer, which he has been pleased to institute in his church. In the old epoch, those included circumcision and the sacrificial system, including the Passover meal. And in our epoch, they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now that these things are of central importance to the Lord, and therefore must be of central importance to us, need hardly any demonstration. Where God has commanded that a thing be done, the mere fact that he has commanded it makes it important. A matter of obedience, in fact, or disobedience. So it is with the sacraments. We are baptized. We come to the Lord's Supper because we're commanded to do so. This do in remembrance of me. Perhaps no passage of Scripture more clearly displays the importance of the sacraments to the divine than the one you will remember that records what must have been a most terrifying encounter between God and his servant Moses, along with his family. You remember this? Circumcision, as you know, was first instituted for the people of God long before Moses lived. God started with Abraham and his son Isaac. This is my covenant with you, God says in bracingly direct language. This is my covenant with you, which you shall keep between me and your you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. But right into the earliest establishment of circumcision as a covenant sign and seal was a command that this be continued from one generation to the next of God's people. Now here comes Moses, generations later, having been called and equipped by God himself to deliver the children of Abraham from their captivity in Egypt. Obediently, on his way there with his wife Zipporah at his side and their sons as well. And suddenly, in a jarring scene, God comes to Moses to kill him. What's going on? First, God painstakingly prepares his servant, and then he comes to kill him on his way to do the very thing he told him to do. Well, we get the answer in the next verse, and maybe in the next heartbeat. Zipporah takes action with a flint knife, circumcises, she does, their uncircumcised son. And as a result, God does not kill Moses. Now you tell me, does God think his sacraments important? Or again, are his sacraments a matter of consequence? Absolutely. The sacraments God has instituted must be observed 
and must be observed scrupulously. We may not think any more lightly of these commandments than we do of God's commandments to worship only the one true God or to not covet our neighbor's wife. But as I say, it is, alas, the bent of the sinful human heart to take important things, central things of God even, and to twist them into things God never intended for them to be. The misuse of the sacraments is one outstanding example of that tendency on our part. In Paul's day, there were Jews, apparently, who found great comfort, far too much comfort was the problem for themselves, and the fact that they could look down and see that they were circumcised, or that they were either daughters or wives of men who were themselves circumcised and therefore were part of the circumcision. Either way, the fact, that fact alone was to these particular Jews, their confidence that they were right with God. After all, they might argue, we bear in our flesh the mark of God's covenant. Don't tell us that we're under the wrath of God. Don't tell us that we're not right with him. I bear his mark. I am circumcised. Now that view was not unique to the Jews in Paul's first century day. The Jews had on and off and then on again for centuries treated these external matters as salvation itself. Over and over down the course of Israel's history, God had to remind them of the fact that their possession of the temple, their relationship to Abraham, even their circumcision, was of no value to them. If, then their hearts and lives, they remained rebels against him. On the contrary, the very fact that they bore the mark of God in their flesh only added to their condemnation. The covenant that God made with them promised blessings, to be sure, but it also threatened curses. And indeed, it delivered those curses on them who bore the mark of the sign of the covenant circumcision, but did not produce fruit in keeping with their identity as the covenant people of God. None of that. None of that really loomed largely, very large at all, in the hearts of these particular Jews about whom and to whom Paul was writing. In fact, they seemed quite content to pat themselves on the back and stroke their own consciences with the idea that 
they were circumcised. And therefore, all was right between themselves and God. And you know that same pattern continues today. Not only among those who typically call themselves Jews, but among Christians as well. Oh, the sign is different, to be sure. It's not circumcision, but baptism that holds the confidence of far too many Christians today. You may be familiar with the autobiographical book of stories by Clarence Day called Life with Father. If not, you may remember the play, but more likely you will remember the 1947 film by that title, or even the television show that ran for a couple of years in the 1950s. It's a rather humorous look at a Wall Street father who tries to run his household like uh, a bank or a commercial office or institution against the background of family shenanigans taking place all around him. I say it is humorous, and it is, but it is for Christians also in a sense, tragic. In the course of a conversation at the table with a house guest, Father reveals that he's never been baptized. Now, on hearing this, his wife, Vinny, is shaken to the core, is is shocked. Something must be done at once. Father must be baptized. But Father scornfully declares that he will certainly have no such folderol as baptism at this late date. And he goes upstairs to dress for dinner, leaving Vinny to ponder his remarks. And she realizes all at once that the unbaptized Father has no name in the sight of the church. They may not even be married. And she gasps as her eyes fall upon their children. And she resolves that Father shall be baptized. For the rest of the play, the theme resurfaces over and over. The little children are caught crying at one point. Why are you crying? They're asked, some by someone, because Father's going to hell. Why? Because he's not baptized. And in the end, Father is bamboozled into it. And the church-bound family will have peace and certainty of knowing that Father is, in fact, going to heaven. And in the last line of the play, Father replies to a policeman who inquires about where they're going with a curse. I'm going to be baptized. And alas... That is the view of many, many a 21st century Christian, at least in our land. Are you sure your family member's going to heaven? Well, he's baptized. I don't know how many times you have heard the same thing as I have when you've asked someone whether they're going to heaven and why. 
what they will say to the Lord, what they would were he to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, I'm a member of such and such a church. Now, they can't even tell you the pastor's name. They can't tell you the last time they attended worship in that church. But he's a member. He's on the roll. He's baptized. I tell you, such folk today are the equivalent of the Jews to whom Paul was writing in this passage. Baptism and church membership are just today's version of the same flimsy refuge so many in Paul's day built for themselves out of their circumcision. As if being circumcised meant that one was ipso facto at peace with God. As if if merely being baptized makes everything right. This error has been repeated over and again from the days of the prophets all the way up through the Roman church and the Orthodox church in our day. The assignment of intrinsic saving powers to outward rites and rituals that is nowhere taught in the Bible. This was one of the very matters of protest for the Reformers in the 16th century. This assumption, based on no less the teaching of the church, that righteousness with God came automatically with the washing the outward washing of baptism itself. Their righteousness was in the water and came with the water and made a person righteous before God in the biblical sense of the pardon of their sin and the justification with God. The same thing was said, you know, about the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. It's that constant tendency of the heart to find salvation in externals. To make salvation more a matter of performance than of genuine faith and and of the heart. To make salvation more outward than inward. And of course, all of this is in direct contradiction to the gospel that Paul preached and that you hear proclaimed in this house week after week. A view of those Jews who thought themselves right with God because of their circumcision or the view held widely in Christendom today that I am right with God because I am baptized or because I take the Lord's Supper, or because I'm in the role of such and such a church, and that as such I am in no way required genuinely to trust in Christ and to live for Him with a living and true faith. I say these views fly right directly in the face of the Bible's doctrines of salvation. But then again, 
These folks are in churches that are pleased virtually to take them by the hand and lead them. Vast multitudes of them happily following each other like a herd of lemmings to the very pit of hell. And they're happy to believe it all the way. People love to find and to be told that they may live their lives pretty much as an unbeliever would live his life and that completely unharassed by the church. So long as they're baptized and they show up from time to time and say amen at the prescribed times and the order of worship, maybe throw a little money into the coffer that seems to help, and then end the charade by taking the Lord's Supper. The Puritan Richard Sibbs long ago described the sacraments in the case of such people as seals to a blank. Paul effectively calls them just that in the passage before us today. Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And again in verse 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter the heart. Now try that verse on for size yourselves in terms of your own life in this epoch. Christians, your baptism is indeed of value to you if you obey the law. That is to say, if you keep God's covenant by faith, And by the obedience that always accompanies faith. But if you break the law, that is to say you spurn God's covenant by your disobedience and unbelieving unrepentance, your baptism becomes unbaptism. And then again in verse 29, for no one is a Christian, we may say, who is merely one outwardly, nor is baptism outward and physical, but a Christian is one inwardly. And baptism is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. That father in Clarence Day's story is the very picture is terrible for a Christian minister to have to say something like this. But I do say he is the very picture of many Christians today. And even, alas, I fear some of you. Baptized outwardly, but unchanged in every other way. Now, don't misunderstand me. Baptism is important. Baptism is obedience to the Lord. The sacraments, including baptism, are even as we call them, 
means of salvation, but not apart from the inward reality. Not without a living faith. Not unless you are also baptized, to use Paul's phrase, in your heart. I want to spend the rest of the time this morning giving you two things. First, a warning, and then an exhortation. First of all, dear flock, hear this warning. It comes from another letter of Paul's written to the church in Corinth. He says to them, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So far, so good. Now listen to this. Are you ready? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What's the point? The point is that it is entirely possible to be set apart by baptism. It is possible to be a member of the church by baptism. It is possible to, in some sense, for Paul says it, to eat and to drink of Christ like they did in the wilderness. And yet, and yet be overthrown by God. These are terrible, even terrifying warnings in Scripture, and they must be taken with full seriousness by every Christian. And the Bible's chock full of such warnings as this. Do not trust in your baptism. Do not trust in the Lord's Supper. Do not trust in your church membership. They are all important, but none of them were sacrificed for you. None of them shed their blood for you. Only one did that, Jesus Christ. He and he alone must be your trust and your confidence and your allegiance. When the Lord looks into your heart, he finds you trusting in your baptism, finds you trusting in your church membership, in your place on the church roll, your baptism will be unbaptism in his sight. And thousands upon thousands of people just like you, millions have perished in just that condition. 
circumcised, baptized, and unsaved. That leads second then to this exhortation. Christian, make absolutely certain that the outward reality, the washing with water on the outside, is matched with an inward reality, the washing with water of your heart. In the old days, the prophets called upon people, the people of God this way. They said, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Or again, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your heart. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Now, I tell you, with what is left of the prophet's office today, the Christian pulpit, baptize your hearts. So that they, and not only your head or your body, are washed. See that the outward sign is matched by the inward reality. The late Dr. Barnhouse on this text reminds us of the great fact, as he calls it, that God wishes these who name his name to become like him day by day. He is a holy God who demands holiness of his people. The will that has received Christ must make a decision for holiness and cleave to it. God repudiates formalism without a heart change. And the man who trusts in liturgical ceremonies or religious rites without having a definite change of heart is in the folly self-deception. It is in some places in the Christian church the practice that a person is given his name at his baptism. Not unlike the way they received their names of old at their circumcision. That idea reminded me of a man who was himself, by all accounts, a true Jew. That is, a man in whom the outward reality of the sacraments also demonstrated itself from the inward parts. The late Dr. D. James Kennedy, who was buried just a few days ago. A couple of days ago, and it reminded me of a story that he told years ago. I remember how it affected me the first time I heard him tell it in his rich baritone voice. It's a story that involves Alexander the Great, who was a great and fearless, courageous leader. None could stand before him. And one thing he could not abide, it was cowardice. In court, he was exacting and merciless. None could deliver from his hand And one day, a 17-year-old, a handsome youth, was brought before him. 
Alexander looked at him. What is his crime? Alexander asked. He was caught running from the enemy and hiding in a cave. He's a coward, one of the officials answered. Alexander's face hardened. But he looked at the boy again, and he softened just a bit. And he said, what's your name? And the people knew that the boy had won his heart. And with a sigh of relief, the boy answered, Alexander, sir. Suddenly, Alexander's face hardened again. What? Alexander, sir? Growing red now with anger, Alexander the Great repeated the question in disbelief. Soldier, what is your name? Alexander, sir, came the reply. And now Alexander, directly in front of him, through clenched teeth, growled, Soldier, either change your conduct or change your name. What is your name? Christian, sir, what is your name? Christian, my Lord, what is your name? Christian, my God, dare you bear that name and that mark of a Christian in your flesh, your baptism, and yet live a life indifferent to the things of God? Dare you trust in your baptism and the name that was formally given to you there, but not live under the summons that was issued you that very same day? Christians either change your conduct or change your name. For no one is a Christian who is one merely outwardly. Nor is baptism outward and physical. But a true Christian is one inwardly. And baptism is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Amen.